0: Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 18. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed Vermont author, Michael Friedthal. He's here to chat about his newest historical fiction novel, Horan No Burning. Michael,
1: how are you doing? I'm doing good. Great. thanks
0: Thanks for having me on. And and so when we're gonna we're gonna jump in and, and, and talk a bit about about your book Haradno Burning, but it actually originally it was gonna have a different name, if, according to my research. Your research is really
1: impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> the Haradno Bookshop lady, correct? Well, actually, for a long time it was called Garfinkel Spirits. All that, right. That's the name of the uh, vodka distillery in the uh, in the book. Okay. And, you know, I, some people didn't like that name, particularly my daughter, my daughter-in-law. I, I ended up, uh, somebody actually suggested this name to me and I, I thought it was an apt title. Okay. Um, and, and we'll
0: get in and, and kind of talk a bit about it uh, in a little bit, but I wanted to kind of give uh, either our listeners and our viewers a, a little bit of background on how you got
1: into writing this book. Sure. My my parents uh, both passed away in 2009 um and <clears throat> the year uh the year my mom died actually i had planned we had talked for years and years about uh going together to climber pennsylvania okay. which is where she grew up uh, it's a small small coal, mount, coal mining town in the western part of the state <clears throat> unfortunately her her um Yearly reunions or five-year reunions always coincided with the start of school for me. Um, so I never made that trip. And then the year I finally was going to do it, no matter what, uh, she passed away. <laughs> so I had—I felt like I had this unfinished business. Um, I knew my father's side of the family really well because they are um, all New Yorkers. They're extroverted, very political very involved, very verbal. You never have to guess what they're thinking. Uh, my mother's side of the family, uh, her her father, my grandfather, was very taciturn, never, didn't say much. Um, and um, her side of the family was not as educated, although she she was very bright and she went to college. Um, and so, but as a result of all that, I knew a lot less about her side of the family. And I did some work on ancestry.com. And for a while, I thought I was going to be writing more of a memoir type book about my mother's family. Cause it's an interesting story. Um, they did come from the pale settlement, which is an area uh, was an area of the Russian empire where uh, Jews were, where they were permanently could permanently reside. They weren't allowed into Russia. Right. The, the main part of Russia. You know, there were stories about escaping from the Tsar's army and the, the trip over. Nothing really terribly detailed or specific, just, just a lot of impressions. So I you know, I, I actually went to Clymer with uh, my cousin, whose um, mother was my mother's sister, my aunt. And <clears throat> we went there probably 2010 or maybe 2011. We met with a, a, a guy who had, uh, who was a town historian. We learned all about the town and a lot of really interesting things that would make an interesting novel um, at some some point. Um, the year my mother was born, there was a coal mining accident in the town and killed uh, twenty six miners. And all through school, you know, she had kids who had lost a father an uncle or an older brother in that mine accident. So a very small, you know, school. So wow. the kids all knew each other. So that made a deep impression on her. And then, you know, it was really interesting to, to learn about that in more detail. So as I, I started to write some stories, it was also sort of a way of work. I was very close to my parents. So it was sort of a writing is a great way to sort of work out. Grief and you know, be able to move on and come to some understanding. And I found out <laughs> through that process that I'm a much better storyteller <laughs> and a fiction writer than I am, sort of a documentarian of you know, exact uh, this happened on this date, this happened on that date, that type of thing. Um, so I decided to turn it into a novel uh, and dedicate it to my parents, which freed me up. Um, to kind of go where I needed to go to tell a really good story. And I some of those um, fragments uh, that I learned about my mother, and certainly my father's side of the family as well, the, particularly the political activism on his side of the family, they found their way into the book. How long did it take you to write this book? Um, it's interesting you ask. I, today I was cleaning out the study, uh, and I came across... Uh, I had been a member of the Burlington Writers Workshop, um, which is a group in in Burlington of of writers who share their work and get feedback from other writers. Um, And that had been very foundational for me to get started. Uh, And I I was going through uh, a number of the things I had written from like 2013. And even as 2013 I was still toying with the memoir genre so I would say 2014 I I made a firm decision I was going to write a novel Uh, so here we are seven years later.
0: Uh, Talked about your style like did you take time out of every day or was it more of like as time as you had free time or how structured or how loose were you on setting that up?
1: I'd say uh, I was working a lot um, particularly in the mornings and it would vary. I mean, I I spent a week one summer in the Vermont Studio School, and I was probably working 16 hours a day. I got, you know, a good chunk of the novel written in that week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would tend to go in fits and starts. Um, and because it's a historical fiction, I, you know, I didn't, unfortunately, I did not do all my research first, which is, I think, <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good way to approach things so you don't have to keep stopping. Right. So I, I, I had to do a lot of research as we went along and and I realized what was going in the book because I didn't necessarily start with a, with a strong outline. I started trying to find out who are these characters, who are the two pro- protagonists, um, what do they care about, what are, the, what are their challenges, um, what are the stakes involved. And once I kind of got a feel for that through just writing them and let you know, I mean, a lot of writers talk about the characters telling you what to do at some point that does happen. Mm. But for a lot of the book, it was a, it was a wrestling match. (laughs) Uh, But once the characters started speaking to me, then, then I had to sort of go back and actually do some serious research and, you know, um, so that I could create a setting that was, you know, felt authentic and was believable when I could believe it. Right. Uh, so you know, it's set in the 19th century. So I had to learn about trains. I had to learn about other technologies. I had to learn about literature that was available at that time. Um, I have a, I, one of the characters is a chess player. I had to learn about how did they play chess in the 19th century. So, so um, as an
0: author, how how difficult was it to have, to create, to write a setting that was, a, that was historical fiction where how much agency did you not have over your characters? Because you knew who, based off of what you know about the, that, that context they were in, they wouldn't yeah. do that or anything like that.
1: You know, I had enough agency because I think, um, I didn't buy into the stereotypes of, of people at that time, you know, the fiddle mm. on the roof stereotype or, some others so i i think there were people were individuals within the confines of of you know their times i actually found that to be helpful because it gave me some structure okay Um, so i didn't have to worry about them emailing each other or you know picking up the phone i I did have to worry about when was telegraph available um That type of thing. Uh, When was the steam engine uh, used to fight fires? It was a different. So there's plenty of things I had to find out, but I, you know, there were a lot of decisions to make. So I certainly didn't feel um, confined. Right.
0: Um, And as you said, it kind of it takes place in the 19th century.
1: The bulk of the novel it finishes up in the actually almost the mid 20th century, 1946.
0: But did you? did you have to kind of create the timeline of, of just technology before you kind of
1: paste it out? Um, I would have been smart if I had done it. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I would bump up. I mean, I probably wrote the book in three years and I spent four years editing. So, <laughs> yeah, and um, Well, a year and a half, of that was actually the publishing process, but there were probably two and a half years of, Uh, page by page what are all the details here that really need to be flushed out Um, so it wasn't a very efficient way to approach it i think for the next book i'll i'll probably get my ducks in order before actually you know start typing but um yeah it's amazing and then I, i wasted a lot of time because uh well I knew nothing about how do you make vodka. I mean, I I knew a little bit, but I I'd never done it. You know, there's a ton of reading, and I probably spent much more time on that than I should have. Given that, I don't think the average reader is going to care too much as long as it comes across as authentic, and you know. Right. Um, You know, like I learned about pot stills and column stills. A pot still, they make a single batch. A column still can be continuous. And that technology was actually available at that time. But um, I kind of drove myself a little crazy because I wanted to do everything right. And even now, I know there are some little tiny errors in the book. Hopefully right. nothing too major. I'm not going to tell you what they are because <laughs> you know, rush through it and see if you can find them. But
0: at what point did you do self-editing? Did did you did you have other people read it, like beta te- beta readers at all?
1: You know, from the very beginning, <clears throat> I had the approach as many readers as possible. I right. you know some some authors, and probably probably some very successful authors have probably just one or two trusted readers read the book, but. Um, I went. I went with uh, the community approach. Uh, so in a way, it's really a community project. Um, from the help I got from the Burlington Writers Workshop, mm. um, there was a guy named Peter Biello who was uh, foundational for me as well in terms of the encouragement and support I got from him. Um, and uh, on through um, my family read the book. They were some of the toughest critics. <laughs> uh, particularly, my daughter <laughs> has written a nonfiction book. She was really tough, but I mean, it was good. The right. book improved a lot. Um, right on down to um, to rootstock. They've been they they did a great job with the book. Um, Mark Greenberg as uh, an editor, uh, Tim Newcomb, book design. So nice. like, it's been a good project. And and so, what what were some of the things that? that were
0: really special, you loved about the book that you had overwhelming feedback to say, this needs to get out. It doesn't make any sense or anything like that. <laughs> well,
1: at one point the book was 125,000 words. Wow. Okay. And yeah. I whittled it down to 93,000. And that's still at th- over 300 pages. Yeah. But, but it's an average, you know, the average right. novel, uh, Come you're coming in around ninety thousand. So historical novels can be a bit more. So it's in there, you know. Right. Um I had a lot more chess in it because I, I I play a lot of chess. I've taught it in schools. Um I did a ton of research on, on it on 19th century chess. And I had a big tournament in there. I had a number of readers say, cut it, cut it. <sighs> Cut it back, <laughs> get it out of there, and you know. So that had to go. Um, I had some secondary characters th- who I spent too much time developing and on on this uh, rather than the, the main. So that had to go. Um, some of the history, which wasn't directly relevant to the uh, narrative arc of the story, um, I had to cut. Um, I had um, there's two characters so the male uh, the first part of the book goes back and forth between Bernard and Esther uh, she's known as Estes and um, Bernard Bernard's uh, religious, she's not but a big, his parts had a lot of the scenes were in, in school mm. schools were called uh, hater headers, haters at that time Um, and a lot of that had to go. Um, so, you know, when I was all done, it was pretty streamlined. Um, but it's a bit painful. Right. I think they, uh, cutting your, your, your loved ones or whatever, you know, out of the book. (laughs) It's a much better book for for doing
0: that. And do you, it. And 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 because of that, is there anything that you were able to you cut out that you kind of set aside and say, all right, I'm going to try to add this to my next story?
1: Um, you know, I think if I could, I would. But yeah. you know, I don't know. The next story probably is not going to have any chess in it. <laughs> uh, I don't think there'll be any religious Jews in the next story. Right.
0: And so give people a bit of a synopsis, kind of a back-of-the-book synopsis of, uh, of, of uh, Harando burning.
1: It's a story about um, a Jewish couple, uh, as I said, Bernard Anastas. And she's a voracious reader, um, a feminist before her time. Uh, she's influenced by her own mother. Uh, she has a mentor who is an actual historical figure. Uh, Eliza orzakova who was a Polish writer and actually the first woman nominated for the uh, Nobel Prize of in Literature, and in, um, I, I believe it was 1905. I don't have my notes right in front of me, but so she had that influence. You know, she she was she spent she she was lonely. She she didn't have friends as a child. She she also was crippled in one foot, which which hampered her a bit, but she was a brilliant. Um, intellectual. Bernard uh, was also had a nimble mind, but he had a disability he couldn't read. So they're a very unlikely couple. Um, and they don't actually get together till the second. There's there's five parts of the book. They get together in the second part of the book. And um, <clears throat> despite their differences, uh, she falls in love. She She resists for some time, but uh, he, he eventually wins her over, <clears throat> and he builds her a bookshop, and she teaches him to read. She, she's not going to put up with having a husband who can't read, and um, everything's going pretty well in their lives. This is a time, um, there might be a, an idea of, of uh, Jews in, in Tsarist Russia as being a uniformly horrible experience, but... In actuality, um, under Tsar Alexander II, many Jews actually felt like things were getting better. Um, he was called the Liberator Tsar not only because he liberated the serfs, but the Jews felt like he was going to liberate them. He never quite did that, but he did um, give them much more freedom of movement. Uh, many more um, Jewish uh, students could go to college, uh, university. Um, so it was moving in the right direction and then um, you know he because he allowed some freedom there was still so much repression I think the earlier czars, there was so much repression that nobody could even think about rebellion but once uh, it's funny the way once the um, autocrat lets up on the gas pedal a little bit and allows some freedom people realize what they've Uh, been missing. And so there was a big tide of revolutionary uh, groups and movements in Russia. And they made numerous attempts on the czar's life. I I mean, that would make quite a novel itself. Uh, There were at least five. They blew up uh, a, a room under his dining room, but he just missing him. He had been late to dinner. They blew up they thought they were blowing up his train, but they targeted the wrong train. They a fire a pistol misfired at point blank range. I mean, it's it's really uh, interesting, uh, you know how close they came. Um, and ironically, on the day that Tsar Alexander II agreed to a um, constitution, which was a you know a step forward for Russia, that was the day that they ex- that they assassinated him. And his uh, his son Alexander the Third was a was quite a brutal man, um, uh, a fervent anti-Semite. One of the assassins um, happened to be a Jewish woman. She plays a pretty big role in the book, and she was one. She had a secondary role in the assassination. So um, the Jews were blamed. Um, you had an anti-Semite in charge of the country. Uh so um the country just exploded uh, particularly in Ukraine, which is part of the Pale settlement, into pogroms, which were, you know, uh attacks against Jewish people, property. So everything kind of falls apart for the for Essus and Bernard at that point. Essis is, is uh being questioned because of her relationship with Gessy Gelfman as the historical figure. Mm. Um who was involved in the assassination of the czar. So she's under surveillance. She's being questioned. And Bernard takes off on a rescue mission to where, to the epicenter where the pogroms are taking place to bring back Estes' aunt.
0: Was there anything about the book as you are writing it that you were surprised that was happening?
1: Well, you know, I didn't necessarily know where I was going to go with it. There Mm -hmm. there, was a big surprise towards the end. I guess I, I was surprised uh, that things weren't as, you you know, I always thought my uh, ancestors came from Tsarist Russia, the the escaping pogroms and, you know, horrible and uh, the conscription of children and all that stuff happened, but sort of like before and after Alexander II. I, I will say towards the end of his reign, as the revolutionary activity picked up, the repression also picked up. They kind of went hand in hand at that point. Hmm. But once you let, once people sense, you know, freedom's possible, they they have less tolerance for for uh, autocracy.
0: Did right. you so as you're writing this because you know you also have a you, you also have a history in education. Was there anything in there where you got to say I need to let people know about this? This is an historical. This is this is a, a piece of history that I want to make sure people are aware of. Um.
1: The pogrom in the book um, takes place in a town called Balta, and uh, it was based on a real, real events. Mm. Um, I did a lot of reading on that, and I tried to make that as authentic. I tried to make everything authentic, but this one I wanted to add some details. It might be tough for people to read, Right. um, but I wanted to make it real. So, you know, so... Uh, nobody will come away not knowing where the pogrom was. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. I mean, part of the fun of writing historical novels, I feel like I, I am now an amateur expert on the time period. I'm right? <laughs> amateur because you know there are people who uh, spend their lives on this this time period and they, they know a lot, a lot right. of this stuff. And um, <clears throat> I had to learn it sort of on the fly. But. Right.
0: And so, this being like your uh, the, as your your first published work, and as you said, you wanted to tell the story. What did you learn about telling stories that you didn't know before you wanted to tell the story?
1: You know, I don't know if it was new learning, but it was certainly reinforced. There has to be something at stake.
0: Mm.
1: If nothing's at stake, why would I care to read it? Right. right? So in this case, there's a lot at stake. There's freedom. Um, there's Life, Um, you know, um, there's a continuation of the family. uh, And I also, um, I think when I, some of my earlier drafts uh, were a little too rosy in terms of the characters, um, the characterizations. Mm. Um, So I added to the, you know, they became more human. Right. And to be, human, you know, flaws are what make us human in in a way. If we didn't have flaws, we'd be machines,
0: right?
1: Right. Yeah. I I think that's important uh, to bring those characters to life. So I had a, I mean, they had, they sort of had natural flaws, like Bernard couldn't read, Estes uh, had, you know, uh, was lame in one foot. But uh, the type of flaw I had to create was more like, Weakness. It might have been a temporary weakness that they had overcome, but something that they did that they were ashamed of allowed some growth, not just in the external political world, but also internally.
0: Did you have any inspirations of historical parts of your family, but anybody that you know, like presently, that you picked out some things just say, I like that personality quirk.
1: I'm going to add that in. I have a lot of little fragments. You know, uh, we have a lot of friends, and I think certain mannerisms find their way into the book, not as whole people, but certain behaviors. Um, something my daughter said when she was a little little girl <laughs> found its way into the book. Um, there's a building scene in in, in the book uh, where they're building the bookstore, and I helped my son build his house, and my father helped me build my house. So certainly I think some of that spirit and camaraderie that we felt is also in that particular scene. I mean, I, I think the, the saying, write what you know, is way overdone. Because if you just wrote what you know, you know, there'd be no, nothing new coming right. out of it. So, um, I think you can learn. Um, knowledge is infinite, So you, I think you can write anything, but you have to have a feel for it. Right. But that writing what you know, I, I think, you know, being the observer of people, I think that helps because you right. can trade here, here and, and you know, kind of
0: <laughs> you have to
1: create a personality that holds together. But
0: going back to the, the timeline of your process is like, so you put together, it says it, it, it took a few years to write it, it, took more years to get it edited. At what point did you say, I think I want to get this published? Yeah. How did that process go?
1: You know, from the get-go, I had the idea that I was going to write a – I mean, after I decided to write the novel, got moved away from memoir, Mm -hmm. um, I had the idea I was going to get this published. And I had a sense of urgency because, you know, um, it's kind of like when you're talking about stakes in the book. You know, I felt like I was writing this book um, because I couldn't actually – I'm not the kind of writer who could write about my parents and and publish that. I just wanna I want to change things. I wanna I wanna mold them a bit, not necessarily just embellish, right. as my wife would say. Yeah, but I had the idea that I was gonna have a book from from the beginning. I is crazy amount of confidence because I I hadn't had any writing classes, and I, I guess at some point I got some. And I was getting pretty good feedback all along. Like, wow, this is good. You know, you should try and publish this. It picked up momentum as I went along.
0: What would you give uh, um, advice to writers who are who are like maybe at that that stage you were a few years ago, where you're like, all right, I got something, I have it here, um, but I'm. Is there a sense of fear of I don't want to let this out into the world at the same time?
1: Well, it's definitely once the book is released. It, it it feels like a release mm. but also a loss of control right um and rootstock publishing was fantastic because i was not an easy author to work with I, mean, <laughs> I don't know that there are easy authors but i mean i was very particular and um we had some you know we had some tension along the way but they were wonderful we worked it out and as a result you know I, it's a better book because of because of um, that process. I would tell writers to make sure that they've done a lot of that before they get to the point of publishing that they've had people read their work. Um, you know, good writers read their work and give them. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and if they don't have somebody that they, feel they can really count on as a single voice or single feedback then have a lot of people read it and kind of take the syn- synthesis of what you hear on that. And I, I certainly took that approach. Mm. Um, so I have to, I have to thank, you know, I mean, I probably had 20, 25, 30 people read parts of the book and probably 15 people read all the book and it made the book so much better. Right. Cause when you're yeah. writing it, you're so close to it. I was so close to it that I didn't see it the way somebody who hasn't lived it for you know, four years would right. see. And what
0: what were some of the things once once you kind of hand it over to Rootstock, what were some of the feedback they said they gave you that was brand new to what you heard from friends and family?
1: The editor was very, very good at pointing out a metaphor that may not have been completely spot on. Um, kind of like the like when you when you build something in a room and you make a complete mess and then somebody comes along and tells you you know you got to clean this up and it was kind of a little bit like that like i had a pretty i think it was a a good book when it went to rootstock but it certainly was in a more raw shape than it is as a published book and i I credit um the editor the designer. Stephen and Samantha for mm. for that process. Um, when I first went to them, I didn't have a glossary. I had resisted that. I had heard that from a number of readers, and for some reason I was kind of stubborn about that because I've read books that have, you know, a lot of Spanish in and they don't they don't do glossary. Um, mm. and I thought you can get most of it from context. I mean, there's quite a maybe a hundred Yiddish words, some Russian words. But uh, I guess if you hear things enough times, you know, sometimes you you say okay. <laughs> so I heard it one more time from uh, the editor, and I so I put a glossary in. I we added the maps. Tim Newcomb, who uh, does cartoons for Seven Days, mm. uh, did a really wonderful job on on four maps in the book. We added a historical timeline. I think all those things made the book stronger more of an educational tool as well as a entertainment. You know, if people do read it, I'd, I'd love for them to go on to Goodreads and Amazon Want to support um, our independent bookstores. That's where I, I try and buy my books. Um, but a lot of people do shop on Amazon and they and if they see a book that has no reviews, that's not very helpful. So oh, great. people read it and they could write a review on Amazon and Goodreads, that'd be great.
0: Was it has there and been any uh, feedback you had that people had insights that you were not expecting at all and were surprised to hear?
1: My wife loved it, so that was really important because <laughs> she, she was, I think she might have been the first reader of the, okay. of the manuscript. And she was a little tough mm-hmm. at, at for, on the first first go round. I mean, she had positive things to say, but she also she's a straight shooter and she. She let me know some things that uh, she thought could be improved. Right. And this time, she she loved it. But what yeah. else could she say? Because I can't change it at this yeah. point. So she had to say that. But hopefully, yeah. I know she meant it because she's an extremely okay. honest
0: person. Did you make the decision? Did you shop around and you kind of settled on rootstock? Or was it rootstock from the beginning?
1: Um, no, it wasn't rootstock from the beginning. Um, I started out trying uh trying to find a, an agent okay because everybody had told me well if you want to get a big publisher you need to have an agent so i probably sent out about 100 letters to agents <laughs> um, i'd say most were, didn't reply mm. um, i got a few nice responses back we like it but it's not quite right for us i, I mean i know people have spent five years trying to get a book out mm. and it's sitting in the closet somewhere and I, I wasn't going to do that. I gave myself six months. I did get maybe three contract offers, uh, fourth maybe, um, but they weren't quite right. Um, I looked around and I said, wow, there's a publisher right in Montpelier, Vermont. Right. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, you know, Rootstock. And um, I spoke with Stephen, uh, MacArthur, I got a good vibe. I, um, I actually spoke with four or five of the authors that they carry and they all had good things to say. Um, I like the types of books they're putting out. They they put out books that, you know, say something about the world we live in and offers some, some hope. Right. Uh, So I felt good about being part of that
0: and it's worked out really well. Because of you, you went through Rootstock publishing, your book's available on
1: everywhere right now. Yeah. Yeah. The difference with, with rootstock and let's say a big publisher is, is you know, the big publisher is going to get the books into bookstores across the country because they have the name and smaller publish independent publishers like rootstock are going to, um, have, it's more of a print on demand process. Right. So it relying more on the author's social media, rootstock, social media, um, word of mouth, get reviews out there. Um, and then it can be ordered, like you say, just about anywhere. Um, but probably you're not going to walk into a big bookstore in New York City and see the book there unless I ca- unless I take some down. <laughs> <laughs> and so for authors
0: that have been listening, this is like, you, you know, they're saying, you know, Michael, you get great reviews. How would you get something on the Kirkus? Is that something that Roostock helped you out with or is that something that?
1: Yeah, Roostock has been very helpful with that okay you know I, I i avoided social media most of my life i just i mean i probably got a facebook account i don't know when i you probably know you did your research <laughs> yeah, i don't know maybe it was three years ago but yeah. i i just have never been drawn to going on right um but through this process you know they they recommended i, I get a twitter account an instagram account and facebook account and i i do have a website for, right yeah Uh, which is nice i can when i contact the library i can tell them to go to the website learn about me learn about the book Congrat. like i said congratulations
0: on releasing your book that's that that's fantastic and people can kind of go to michaelfriedthal.com this is where they can
1: yeah they can learn about the the process about the the story a little bit about me yeah yeah yeah
0: cool Excellent. Well, Michael, thanks again. Thank you so much. And, and you, you're going to have to come back when, when your second book comes out.
1: I will in 11 months. Oh, 11, 11 months from January. Okay. <laughs> Johnny, it was great talking to you. Yeah,
0: it was great talking to you too. Enjoy it.